Welcome to the Revival Leadership Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Revival Leadership Podcast. It's an honor today to be joined by the Reverend Christian Hernandez. Christian is the senior pastor of Hope Astoria Church in New York City, in Queens. And he's a dear friend of ours, somebody we've looked to as a mentor in prayer, in the prophetic, and in preaching. So all three of those P words. And we're excited to talk with Christian about his own story, uh, experiencing revival growing up in his neighborhood in New York, also about uh, the role of prayer, the central role of prayer in preparing for revival, and how Christian today, as as obviously a a leader in his church system, is thinking about uh, being a culture change agent, helping his church to grow in prayer. So thanks for joining us, Christian. Man, it's a privilege. I, I love you guys. I love uh, what you're doing and your leadership and your ministry and love your heart to create uh, this conversation. Uh, it's a critical conversation, and I'm grateful that you're creating this resource for leaders like myself. Uh, so thank you, man. It's a privilege. Ah, uh, shucks. Well, so, uh, <laughs> Christian, just... Um, just, just maybe start us out by just like tell, telling us a little more about what your role is right now. What's your current ministry role that you're involved in? Yeah. Um, well, back in uh, July of 2013, I joined uh, Hope Astoria. Um, my friend Drew Hyun uh, planted that church uh, in September of 2012. And there was a vision to plant churches throughout New York City. And uh, when I joined, I honestly didn't connect the dots that if we actually planted churches, I might have to leave one. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to be in the room where the stuff was happening. Uh, I love New York. Um, I saw church planting in scripture very clearly and throughout history. And, and so uh, fast forward, uh, we begin to actually plant churches and Drew approaches me to lead the first of now nine churches. Um, and, Dang. uh, so it's, uh, yeah. So I could say more about that, um, in terms of my own personal journey, but, uh, into, into this leadership role, but really just since July of 2013, it's been an amazing experience. Uh, feel like I've had a front row seat to see this incredible thing happen in the city I love, um, churches being planted and uh, people coming to Christ and incredible miracles have happened. Uh, truly the spirit has been at work. And so, um, yeah, that, that's it. So I became lead pastor of Hope Astoria in December of 2015. And so it's been just an amazing season um, of just God doing incredible things. Come on. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the questions we often ask um, guests on the podcast is uh, how the topic of revival became important to you personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. You know, we know a little bit of your background and your conversion story. Uh, So 
yeah, we'd love to hear. Um, there was kind of like this mini revival in Brooklyn um, that yeah. you a little bit about, but how, how have you come to connect with revival personally? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it, it is definitely connected to my conversion story in that my the church I came to Christ in, uh, unbeknownst to me, had been praying and fasting for several years that God would reach young people in our neighborhood. Um, during that time, uh, the crack epidemic of the 80s and uh, early 90s in New York City, and it was not a good time to be in New York. Um, nobody was moving into New York. People were moving <laughs> out. Um, and so uh, it during that time, uh, our neighborhood was just being ravaged um, by drugs and violence. Uh, 40, I, I believe it was a 48% high school dropout rate in our wow. neighborhood alone. Um, and those figures actually didn't even pale. Uh, it pales to compare to other parts of New York. Um, and in the midst of that, this church it just begins to cry out to God that God would rescue young people. Mm. And um, a friend of mine uh, who led me to Christ, he was one of the craziest kids in our neighborhood, um, uh, one of the most influential. All the guys wanted to be like him. All the girls wanted to be with him. Um, uh, name is Peter Carrion. Um, incredible dancer. Uh, very, yeah, very popular, good-looking guy. And um, he, uh, a neighbor of his comes to Christ on one of the worst blocks in our neighborhood. I mean, wow. drugs were drugs were being sold on this block on a scale that's hard to even quantify. Um, wow. There would be lines coming out of buildings, the way you would see lines at like a popular uh, brunch spot um, it, for, for people to buy a crack. And, wow. um, and the cops would basically park their cars there during the summer because they had no solution other than to just like mm. leave patrol cars there. Um, his neighbor comes to Christ and then through that relationship he comes to christ and peter one of the most natural evangelists i ever met he led about close to 30 or 40 of my friends to christ just one-on-one um and but the fire of prayer that birthed um this evangelistic uh fervor in our church never abated Mm. um in that i come to christ uh september 26 1994 and less a little over a month after my conversion, I find myself in the middle of a, a 72-hour, round-the-clock prayer and fasting campaign. Wow. Where our whole church would take, people would take two-hour shifts around the clock. Wow. And uh, the, the building was left open for 72 hours, and people were just praying and seeking God and um, asking God to break into our community and do something. And... um and so in the midst of, like, I'm a Christian for, you know, uh, less than two months at that point, and it was just normal. Uh, yeah. I was I was discipled that that was normal. It was normal to pray and fast. It was normal to uh, be a church in that kind of way. It was normal to, uh, and even the way, the way Peter discipled us, um, mm. he discipled us in a way that he taught us to read the Bible not like it was a, a historical book mm. or a, a book full of doctrine alone. He taught us to read it like as if it was a menu at a restaurant mm. where if you read something, you could have that. You could order that. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, so we would read that we were supposed to preach. So that, that's what we did. We would go and just find people to share the gospel with in our neighborhood. We would read that we were supposed to pray for the sick. We would read that we were supposed to cast out demons. And so we would go up and down our neighborhood in the streets, wherever we could find people. Um, and we would just try to do the, the works of Jesus that we saw him do in scripture. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, as a teenager, those were the waters that I was converted in, a uh, mm. real uh, atmosphere of intense prayer mm. um, and an expectancy that yeah. the God of the Bible uh, and the God of today were no different. Yeah. And that Christians today and Christians in the Bible um, were people that were marked by supernatural power from the Holy Spirit to do the mission of Jesus. And yeah. so, um, yeah, so uh, in that atmosphere, very early on, I began to read about uh, just different moves of God throughout history, um, whether it was the Great Awakening or the Welsh Revival by Evan Roberts, um, the Azusa Revival, um, the different revivalists throughout history that God had used uh, to spark awakenings. Um, and so, yeah, as a teenager, for me, that was just as important uh, pieces of history to study as American history or whatever yeah. I was learning in school. Yeah. Um, and man, the biographies and the histories of uh, those men and women and the things that God did just shaped me um, and um, yeah, deeply impacted how I saw ministry, how I saw life, and really what I wanted to believe God to do in my lifetime. Wow, that's so powerful. Yeah. So just out of the story straight, I mean, like you came to to Christ in the, in this crazy atmosphere of prayer and hope and expectancy. And um, but the church that, you know, that church was not always, I mean, it, it was it, they kind of came to a crisis point. You're telling me like. A, a few years earlier, just looking around their neighborhood, yeah, almost maybe feeling just a, a sense of despair or hopelessness about like how is this? Like, tell us more about as you got to know that church. What did you learn about the backstory to how that kind of how that culture of prayer came about? Yeah, I mean, my uh, my pastor uh, Bishop Matera. Um, I lived with him and his family uh, when I was 18. I moved in with them right when I started college. And I was directly interfacing in their home with them until uh, my early 20s. And I saw him pray. Mm. Uh, I would hear him two, three in the morning, mm. pacing above my room, praying, seeking God. Um, I was in his home uh, and uh, see him fast for sometimes weeks on end. Um, and so honestly, if you have a pastor like that, yeah. uh, it's hard for the culture of the church to be any different. Wow. So it was, um, it, yeah, we were far from a perfect church. There's no yeah. perfect church, but one thing that, um, was for sure, we were definitely going to pray. Um, yeah. um, we were, we took the call to pray seriously. Um, so I think it all began with him and his wife. Um, yeah. They're both incredible people of prayer. Um, and they, they came to Christ during the Jesus people movement. Um, and so they, 
they saw another, this, another revival. Yeah, Interesting. they saw waves, waves of revival. Um, they were in early meetings with Wimber and his team, um, oh. as well as uh, exposed to different leaders from the Argentine revival. Um, yeah. So from all these different kind of confluences, uh, they, they were really baked in that kind of atmosphere. And yeah. so, um, yeah, it, it flowed that our church took on that kind of DNA. Yeah. And so you guys were like, I mean, what was it? You guys were in Brooklyn and this was back way before Brooklyn, all the hipsters moved in. This is, it was yeah. a diff, almost a totally different Absolutely. city. What was the ethnic um, background of the church? What was it like? Yeah. Um, well, when I first came to Christ in 1994, uh, the vast majority of our church were uh, of Hispanic uh, origin um, and uh, most of them were, uh, most of us were Puerto Rican. Um, and yeah, and the, the, I mean, the people that comprise the church, there was some working professionals and, yes. and some people that maybe own side businesses here and there, but the vast majority were either this working class and overwhelmingly there was a lot of people that were coming out of substance abuse backgrounds. Um, wow. And also like first or even at most sometimes second generation of people steeped in public assistance and uh, yeah, yeah. You know, welfare programs. And so there wasn't, wasn't a church filled with powerful people, cultural elites or anything yeah. of that nature. It was yeah. God saved some really rough people. Um, and over the years saw an incredible transformation. Those same people went on to get college degrees and start businesses and buy homes. And so it wasn't just a transformation of their souls. The the whole trajectory of their life changed yeah. Yeah. as a result of them experiencing the gospel. And over the years, it became much more uh, ethnically diverse and socioeconomically diverse. But when I first came to Christ, it was a reflection of the community. It was yeah. uh, predominantly Puerto Rican. Yeah. And it's such a cool, I mean, I just feel like this is a, uh, an amazing story because in some ways, I mean, revival is like, uh, it's like an earthquake, you know, and it can it have different orders of magnitude. So some revivals are, you know, cross national revivals and some of them take place in like a city block or a neighborhood, but all of them have similar dynamics and you kind of see it all playing out in the story, which I just think is so cool. It's God brings a community a christian community to this place of holy discontent or longing mm -hmm. for a breakthrough and and for for you guys it's because literally people are dying from crack and the neighborhood is just yeah it's like literally demon possessed and it's just it's just um mm -hmm. it, it's in desperate need of god and so this community begins to pray and they you were telling me they're like fast and pray on these rhythms, you know, that rhythms of yeah. fasting and prayer built into the community. And then God begins to bring a breakthrough mm -hmm. and some people start coming to faith. And then Peter come, Peter Carrion comes to faith and leads you to faith and 29 other people. And you guys get sucked into this life of prayer and, and then start re and, loving the scriptures and going and sharing the gospel and praying for people on the streets. And, um, I mean, it's such a powerful picture. And then, I mean, the other piece too. So there's like, we've been talking about this paradigm of, of word deed and power that mm -hmm. revivals 
tend to operate in. And so the other piece, like the, the word piece um, is kind of you guys hearing the gospel, responding, preaching the gospel. And the power is all these miracles that are happening as you're praying or even the life of prayer of the church. And then you're even sharing that the church began to start like or kind of organized responses to the needs of the neighborhood and began like mm-hmm. serving the neighborhood. Share more about that. Like how did that, it's kind of like the deed circle. How did that, yeah. how did the church begin living out the gospel in really tangible ways in the community? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the church actually was founded um, upon an outreach to children in the neighborhood. And so my pastor and his wife would go in door to door, pick up kids on Saturdays and bring them to a rented church building where they would go and teach these kids, um, really young kids, um, gospel songs and Bible lessons. And this outreach grew to hundreds of kids. And over time, uh, you know, admittedly, some of the parents said, man, we just wanted a break from our kids. Like they almost didn't even care what was happening. Um, Like if the kids were learning the Bible or anything, that was of no interest to a lot of parents. They just wanted a break. But then over time, they began to notice like, hey, what's going on with these kids, uh, with our kids? And they began to find out. And uh, that began some relational bridges. And then parents became uh, followers of Jesus. And so now... There, there came a need where parents are coming to Christ. These kids have come to Christ. And so now an outreach alone wasn't sufficient uh, to disciple these people. And so, uh, yeah, so from day one, the church was built around sharing the gospel, um, meeting people where they were at, uh, seeing conversions happen. And then from there, the need to disciple these people. And so, um, which, I, you know, I think that has contributed to the staying power of this yeah. church. It's over 30 years old, and the foundation of it was not, um, you know, there, I, I've seen church plants and different ministry models where it's not built on evangelism. It's built on attraction, mm-hmm. uh, attract, attractive services or different mm-hmm. things of that nature. Um, and at a certain point, you just got to keep pumping money and resources and stuff into that to keep it going Mm. versus man, if God is doing something at the ground level, such Mm. as what I saw at the church where people were coming to Christ and there was things happening in the community that Mm. required a church rhythm to come around it so that people could be discipled. That's just a different trajectory. And so out of that origin, um, the church not only prayed a lot and, and, did evangelism and prayed for the sick and did kind of the supernatural ministry of Jesus. But the church also built an after school program, one of the only academically focused after school programs in the neighborhood. Um, the church met the felt needs of the community. Uh, church was responsible for helping many kids get adopted that, that were in really critical, dire situations. Um, and so, yeah, it, 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 upon reflecting back, you know, as we've been talking, I realized like if we're going to talk about revival, it has to be a big enough lens that we view this idea that it's not just uh, kind of uh, a spiritual vitality that re-enters Christians' lives or even 
miracle or, or the ministry of the spirit uh, in kind of confined ways, but it has to be holistic. It yeah. has to really embody the fullness of the gospel. If yeah. it's going to have an impact over decades. Yeah. Um, if you look at historically, there's been moves of renewal uh, that have come from the spirit and they're pretty short in their time frame. And I think part of the reason why they may be so short in their time frame is because they never get rooted in mission. Mm. It, it's confined to meetings, um, to maybe manifestations of the spirit, but it never gets rooted into mission in a way that can deeply embed itself into a community and change the trajectory of people's lives in that way. And so, yeah. That's deep right there. And that connects to your thing we just talked about, word, need, and power in our one of our last episodes about revivals mature I, I wonder like as you were saying that i was thinking like oh maybe the ones that didn't mature to include uh evangelism or justice maybe just started or that started with justice but didn't include like personal renewal right. like they they're starting at either word deed or power but there's not they're right. not given enough time or something happens mm-hmm. you know, they're shut down by human human mistakes or something before they reach full maturity which would then make yeah and one of the yeah, things, point. one of the things James Chung was talking about, our our friend James Chung from Intervarsity was just sharing is like so often in our minds, revival comes to mean less than the inbreaking of the fullness of the kingdom of God. And right. and and he is, I mean, his comment was, and his words not mine. It's a bastardization of res- revival to think of something that only touches the soul but doesn't bring in a full inbreaking of the kingdom and word, deed, and power that brings like a new normal of the kingdom. And that's totally what happened is the kingdom of God like invaded your little neighborhood of Brooklyn. Yeah, absolutely. Crack epidemic. That was the kingdom of God coming yeah. through <laughs> word, deed, and power. And it's, uh, I don't know, how does it make you feel, Adam? Like, it's just exciting. It's like, wow, Lord, that's what we need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you feel like so how did that inbreaking get rooted in mission like what were i mean we didn't prep this question but like i'm just curious yeah. like as the spirit begins to move or heat up like how do we keep it from just being kind of an, an emotional experience or how do we help it to be to set right. up so that it's actually a lasting um mm-hmm. kind of movement that actually impacts the community yeah. Um, well, I, I think, you know, why I'm interested in this podcast is because I think you guys uh, have hit the nail on the head that it revivals need revival leadership, where it's not, you, if God answers our prayers uh, for a move of the Spirit, one of the ways that prayer is going to be answered and matured is through uh, leaders being mm. able to shepherd a move of the Spirit. You know, like uh, Jack Hayford from the Foursquare denomination would often say that you have to shepherd the gifts of the Spirit. Like, mm-hmm. it's not just enough to desire the power of the Spirit, but when He comes in power, uh, you have to shepherd it. And mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah, so I think the, uh, like for, it, I'm grateful. There was very wise leadership over the years that recognized in charismatic Pentecostal circles, a lot of times the ministry of the Spirit is confined to meetings. Um, it focuses on miracles 
or manifestations, but it's typically divorced from mission. Um, and so it becomes very inward focused. Mm. One, of, one of the things that breaks that from happening or becoming a norm is the constant connection of if we're being internally revived and we're not going out into the mission field, then mm. are we really being internally revived? Mm. Um, <clears throat> if you encounter Jesus at the core of your soul, how, how does that not spill over into yeah. evangelism and works of service and loving our neighbor? You know, um, like the quote from Spurgeon, every Christian's either a missionary or an imposter. You know, like mm-hmm. if you if you really meet Jesus, you're going to go out. And yeah. so if the Spirit's reviving a community and it doesn't lead it to mission yeah. and actually works of service and the preaching of the gospel so that people can come to faith, then it's an immature revival. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's already short-circuited. Even if the meetings continue, even if the, the atmosphere of prayer continues, um, yeah. it's never going to mature. And so I think in our church, one of the things that I'm grateful for is that we were actively trying to reach our neighborhood, serve our neighborhood, and, and leverage our relationships in any way that we could in order to see people come to Jesus. And then once people came to Jesus, we were very committed to uh, discipleship. Yeah. Where, um, yes, once someone came to Christ, it was our responsibility within the community of leaders and maturing believers to bring that person along um, mm-hmm. and basically impart to them everything we had received. Um, and so... I think those two things were there was a commitment to mission and also to maturing people in the yeah. faith um, allowed us to mature to a point where it wasn't, yeah. it didn't come and go. It was sustained, you yeah. know, for a, a long period of time. So it's almost like that, that, that understanding of the church having a mission is particularly your church. And then the awareness of the need in the community, the commitment to see people come to faith, it almost provided like a channel or like a conduit, like almost like an electrical circuit. You know, you don't want to just have electricity with no insulation around the wire. It just goes everywhere. It can become destructive, very unproductive. It'll arc and start fires. But if you provide it, those that conduit actually channels it into like fruitful work you know you yeah it, it makes it effective it, it you can get work done with it so it like yeah enables the power of the holy spirit to be channeled into the mission of god which Greg, then, the master of metaphors hey. strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> hey um you know one thing that do, does strike me and i think we want to talk more about but i just like um as you look back on all this though i do want to focus again on because I think one of the things I've learned so much from you, Christian, is really about prayer. And just like as you reflect back on it, like what are you what are you noticing about the role of prayer and mm-hmm. that need for prayer in the church or in parachurch? Like the importance of prayer in creating or in I don't know, preceding, ushering in that spiritual dynamic of life that we call revival. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, early on in, in my faith journey, uh, one of the um, most catalytic things, someone handed me a Leonard Ravenhill book. 
Um, mm. And uh, Leonard Ravenhill uh, is best described as DM bounds without grace. Um, <laughs> he teaches on prayer. Yeah. And, uh, but he's, he just holds no punches back, yeah. um, especially when he talks about prayer for leaders. And he, he he's, uh, I read it from him where he would say, uh, Sunday morning attendance reveals how popular the, the pastor is. Uh, Sunday night attendance for churches that would have guest speakers Sunday night reveals how popular the guest speaker is. The prayer meeting reveals how popular God is. Mm. And I think if we're going to see a move of the spirit, uh, it's impossible to see it without a true groundswell of prayer in a church because it, without that happening, um, it's not it's not a guarantee that that church actually enjoys God. They may believe in God. Um, they, may be co- they may be committed to doing things in the name of God, but uh, do they actually enjoy being with God? You know, it's, um, mm. it's a big difference. Um, and it's kind of similar to, uh, you know, what they, they uh, like in marriage, like, uh, or a, a long committed relationship where the longer you know somebody, the more, the easier it is for you just to be with them without mm. actually have to, having to fill the space with noise. Yeah. Um, silence is an uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, well, it's like, it's like going to, going to a restaurant, my wife and I now, we look around the room and the couples that are really working hard, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, they just, this is their first they, date or whatever. And we're like, oh, are we boring? No, we're just comfortable in each other's presence. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, yeah. and so uh, you can be comfortable in each other's presence, even in silence. And um, a friend of mine, Rich Velotis, he pastors in, uh, in Elmhurst over here at New Life Christian Fellowship. And uh, he had sent me some stuff he wrote on this very subject it was so gripping and moving talk just about that uh, if we examine how much we fill our churches with noise mm. and how uncomfortable it gets for us to just to be with god in silence it actually raises the question do we enjoy him mm. do we actually know him and so um if, when a church is, enjoys god one of the things that they will be very apt to do is to pray to mm. seek him mm. and then when you're seeking god in prayer and encountering him uh the spirit when he fills us he's always filling us toward the end of glorifying jesus he's always uh that's all he wants to do is glorify jesus and mm. so if we're filled with the spirit in prayer he's always going to be leading us outward mm. and leading us toward works and deeds that glorify jesus mm. um and so it's impossible for us to see a revival in word, deed, or power without prayer, because otherwise it's only through prayer that we'll be energized by the Spirit to glorify Jesus in any of those ways. Yeah. Um, and then the other critical part of prayer is that, he, you know, Jesus said in John chapter 5, that he only did what he saw the Father doing. Come on. And so for us as, as, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to do ministry, not just do the ministry that Jesus did, but do ministry how Jesus did it, it's impossible to do so without prayer. The first task of prayer in, when it comes to ministry uh, is to discern what is the Father doing yeah. and how do we join Him in it 
um, it, it, it's, a, it's a radically different posture yeah. than just trying to do a bunch of Christian stuff yeah. and then saying, God, would you bless this? Yeah. Versus saying, God, what are you doing? And yeah. we're going to go right where you're at and yeah. knowing that he's going to bless what he's already doing. Yeah. Which that kind of prayer, I mean, seeking God, that type of prayer really does require a, a, a sacrifice of time mm-hmm. you know, and agenda and control. And so for you guys, even in your, in the church in Brooklyn, they, they would set aside significant amounts of time for the church to come and, and pray and wait on God. Yeah. And, and, um, and yeah, we are, we, we so that, I mean, it does bring up a barrier to revival. A significant barrier is that a lot of times, churches and pastors are are so busy that um mm-hmm. there isn't quote unquote room for prayer which really probably just means prayer is not a priority for us but yeah but it, it uh, is a paradigm shift we have to um we need that paradigm shift in order to be ready ourselves to lead revival and um, yeah. yeah i mean one one can argue that um in many ways, we're watching uh, an epic of ministry before our eyes that is being fueled by the idea of let's try to do as much as we can without requiring prayer to do it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like um, let's try to plant as many churches as we can, do as many outreaches as we can, let's do everything we can mm-hmm. um, without like the the deepest searching for prayer, you know, seeking of God in prayer. And so yeah. it's, um, the truth is, that I, I, I know that can sound judgmental, um, and that's really not my heart, but I know that at the end of the day, the things that are birthed in prayer um, can be sustained over time. Yeah. The things that are not, um, yeah. man, they fizzle. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, it's a it's a big different, like you said, it's a it's a paradigm perspective of yeah. uh, what can not. It's not the idea of what are we going to try to do, or what yeah. can we do in our own strength, but yeah. actually we're trying to do ministry that we can't do apart from God showing up. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I mean, there really is an option for us. I mean, and so I mean, folks listening to the podcast, I mean, I think. Just just reflect on your own experience of ministry, and and there really are those kind of two main paradigms for pursuing the kingdom. The one is let's do the best we can with what we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's work really hard and use all the best tools we have, and and do a little more, and work on the work in the evenings, and you know, um, and try and, and try to do that too, and that that other thing, and whatever that church is doing, let's do that. So the best we can with what we have, or we can seek the Lord whose ways are higher than ours. Yeah. So that's the other option. His, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so if we seek him, then God will reveal to us the divine strategies he wants to use. And they'll have a kind of fruitfulness and an effectiveness that we could never come up with on our own. And yeah. So there we have it. Those are our, uh, those are our options. Well, um, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more practical and dive into Christian's actual church and some practical things. But now for our first ever commercial break.
All right, Christian, um, here's our first advertisement on the podcast. You have a book that we want to chat about and give you a chance to, uh, to share a little bit. It's called Beholding and Proclaiming. It's about preaching. Greg and I both had the opportunity to read it. It's a, it's a book we love. It's a book we love. You yeah. get to sit down on one of your seminars. So yeah, go, go ahead and give us a little, uh, who should read it? Why should they read it? Um, what's it about? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, why people should read it, um, what I began to wrestle with was the question of what if preaching could do more than just inform the mind? Um, which informing the mind is not a bad thing, but what if it could do more? And also, what if it could be an instrument to transform the soul of both the preacher and the listener? Mm. And those questions began to really stir me um, toward uh, the content of the book because I began to wonder if it could transform the preacher and the soul, uh, the, pre- the soul of the preacher and the listener, but also what if preaching uh, in local churches, what, particularly what if local churches with respect to preaching became the breeding ground for the next generation of preachers. And it, the combination of all that, creating, a, inviting preachers to a place where they can preach from a deep transformative place themselves, where listeners would be receiving more than just a lecture. They would be encountering God via a sermon. And then local churches would become breeding grounds to train preachers. Um, that's why I read the book. I wrote the book, rather. Um, the people that I believe should read it, I think, I, I wrote it for uh, church planters that are looking to train secondary communicators and can't afford to send somebody off the seminary. Um, hand them this book, it can get them started right there in the local church. Mm. Order for church planters as well that um, are tired and weary of doing everything else plus preaching. I think this mm. can energize the preaching, um, but also for seasoned pastors and ministry leaders that are looking for a tool that can help them develop a pipeline to train preachers in their local church. And so, yeah, I, I've seen God do some really fun things with it. I hope it can be helpful. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So again, the title is beholding and proclaiming and where can people find out more info and buy it if they want to yeah um they can go to amazon uh and buy directly from there um just type in beholding and proclaiming uh and they can also go to the charisma group that's k-e-r-y-g-m-a group.com and uh all the seminars and information on the book and different tools that are being developed for preachers and local churches they can find all of that there Awesome. Love Check it. it out. Love it. All right. Let's get Thank back you, to it. Well, I think we're going to talk just about a little bit now. It's been awesome to hear background and about this kind of revival that took place. And then I think it'd be fun, though, to just think about um, prayer leadership as such an important precursor revival that revival leaders really do need to be like change leaders in the area of developing a prayer culture. And so, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, you want to, Adam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, like one thing I want to talk to you about is your own, the church you're leading now. And, um, you know, hopefully they're all listening to this podcast and you talk about them. But, <laughs> but I would say this, it was probably a church that's solidly in the, in the evangelical stream in terms of very mm-hmm. word based and, and a different cultural background from you. I mean, you're uh, Puerto Rican, New Yorkian, and uh, and this church is probably primarily Asian American, at least when you inherited it, right? Uh, so yeah. Cultural differences, and 
Um, and so you come steeped in this prayer streams, charismatic fasting, prayer, miracles, whatever. And this church is like, we really like Christian, but probably really less familiar with um, yeah. that kind of, the kind of prayer culture that you brought in. So I don't know, just share about the journey of that. Like, how, like what was that? What's that been like for you? And then what are some of the thing, ways God has been leading you? to lead that church into deeper yeah. practices of prayer and seeking God. Hmm. Well, yeah. And when I first came to the church, um, it, it was a struggle uh, for me early on. I actually uh, wondered if, man, if I made the right choice, if I actually followed God. Um, Cause there was just such a disconnect for me hmm. Um and that was for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, one one of the first prayer meetings I, I came to the first uh, the church had about like three or four people in it. And um, not that a prayer meeting can't be powerful if there's a few amount of people, but because uh, I've been to prayer meetings where it was just two people. And it was glorious. Um, yeah, I've led a lot of those. <laughs> but this one was uh, not a lot of people and not a lot of power. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so it was, I've led a lot of those too. <laughs> <laughs> As have I. Um, and, uh, but yet what was interesting was, uh, yeah, maybe the prayer culture wasn't there as I understood it or as I was familiar, hmm. but yet this church was planting churches. Yeah. Um, this church was seeing the gospel move forward, um, and disciples being made. And so I knew it was an opportunity for me to grow in my understanding and how I understood things. And so, one of the first uh, lessons I had to uh, learn was I had to separate um, my cultural understanding of how the spirit moves mm. from just the pure essence of it mm. in scripture. Yeah. And that took some time realizing that maybe culturally I was used to an environment that was more emotionally responsive yeah. or prayed for a certain period of time or in a certain way yeah um, but divorcing that and saying all right if i separate that what's the essence what's the purity of an encounter with god and the spirit yeah. and as i began to wrestle with that um began to really realize that i was bringing some unnecessary baggage to uh, it where yeah. if i shed some of those cultural expectations away and just stripped it down to are people actually encountering god um, and me not put a label on what that looks like or not, but actually just sincerely seek for that and ask for that. Um, that began to catalyze things. And so um, when I kind of took the expectations or the restraints, so to speak, of like, God, this is what it has to look like. Um, and just said, I just want people to meet Jesus and to encounter him and to enjoy him and to be uh, filled with the spirit. And then begin to figure out what that would look like in our context. Then some amazing things began to happen. And so um, one of the things is that uh, it began with uh, just a call to the staff and the core leadership where I, I knew very well that we could not lead the church into prayer if, the, if us as leaders had not gone there ourselves. Yeah. And so our staff leadership times, uh, it, it wasn't really... I didn't really do a great job leading those times strategically or organizationally. Um, all we did was pray. Mm. We, um, uh, to seek God together 
and strategy and plans will birth out of the simplicity of what do we sense in prayer? And um, and so out of those prayer meetings came sermon series and came events and, and gatherings and different things of that nature, or let's try this, or let's... Um, so our strategy was uh, really let's pray and let's seek God. Um, that was a big uh, shift. But then from there, we began to try to build culture and normalize what it would look like for people to respond um, to invitations for prayer, to receive prayer, to offer prayer, um, but in particular, offering prayer with an ear open to the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, so then we began to train leaders, uh, began to train people in listening prayer, began to teach people in biblical principles of uh, the prophetic gifts that we see in scripture, creating an expectation and an atmosphere where prayer was not just a monologue, it was a dialogue. We were encountering God. God was breathing into his church. He was the shepherd of his church. And when we began to train leaders around that, those, those, those core principles, and then with those leaders, we began to shape culture on, in our Sunday gatherings and in our small group gatherings where now there was uh, built in an expectation that when we gather, we believe that God can speak. We believe that God can break in and power. Mm. And we, that became a norm and part of our culture. And it took some time, but over, over uh, a period of months, uh, we began to see a steady shift where now more and more people were comfortable and receiving prayer. There was um, ad hoc prayer meetings happening that weren't organized by us as leaders. Um, but mm. honestly, one of the most critical moments where we saw a lot of stuff shift was uh, two years ago, we had a 21-day season of fasting and prayer in the church. Mm. And that shifted something significantly in our culture. Um, mm. So if I could distill all of that, making sure that leaders are core to prayer, that they, they're they living what they're going to call the church into, mm-hmm. training leaders to begin mm-hmm. to lead the church into prayer, into the ministry of the Spirit, so that now you can create culture around it where it becomes part of your norm. And then having kind of renewal moments within your year and your mm-hmm. rhythms where we gather around those realities Um all of those things over time began to shift the culture where now we're in the season where I'm, I'm so far in the, like in the, as an expression, so far in the forest that I don't always see the trees. Mm. When I step back, like I, it's been crazy what's been happening in the last couple of months. We're seeing people come to Christ through words of knowledge. Wow. We're seeing amazing healings happening. Um, like straight up miracles that mm. it, I, like I have to remind myself, this is actually the church I'm pastoring, and I'm <laughs> this is happening here, and, yeah. and it's happening to normal people. Like yeah. there's there's a guy that he's not even like a pastor or an official leader in our church, and we've been able to trace back like some of the craziest miracles that have happened mm-hmm. recently. Has become this teenager who's been praying for people. Yeah, um, woman received restoration of her hearing. Another guy, uh, his leg was healed like in a dramatic way. Um, so, yeah, I think all of those things factoring in. And, um, 
one thing I want to point out that you didn't yeah. include in your summary is that, I mean, there was this conviction that you had around prayer, but then the real, the thing that really unlocked all of this was your humility, which then led to this hospitality of sorts where you're like, I might, you know, I need to get over my cultural understanding of this. It doesn't mean that it's not happening. And you're, your heart's desire to create a hospitable space for your people to encounter God, whatever that might look like. Like if you didn't do that, this, that would be the bottleneck and nothing else would have happened. So like the key, one of the, as you were talking, I was like, Oh, that's one of the key leadership moves here is to have that sense of humility. And then to, uh, how do I create a space that is hospitable for the people in my church or in my group? It doesn't mean that we don't challenge them at some point, but how do I help them encounter God where they're at right now? Um, that was awesome. Well, and I, I, and, and, and that deep level conviction in your own heart. So, I mean, it's probably thinking about leadership. It, you can think of it like it really starts with, with you, it starts with you, the prayer culture in your own heart. And then the conviction you have that this is really important. We can't yeah. do it without this. And until that conviction gets there, it's really hard to lead out of it, but you had that conviction and then and then the embodiment of it at the leadership level. So, and I think as pastors or ministry leaders, we do have some kind of levers to pull. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to like force people to pray with a gun to their head at the same time. I think what does it mean to transmit that conviction of this is important. Well, and a gun to the head might actually make people pray really fast. It might make them pray fast. But, but like the stuff you had control over, like how you had the staff meeting. So, and you were like, all right, well, this is important. We're going to spend staff meeting time praying. And mm-hmm. some other things are going to slide. Like when you're like, I didn't lead yeah. it. You know, I didn't do it. Maybe I didn't do X, Y, and Z, but at least what we did was we prayed. And then, mm-hmm. and then, yeah. And you then know, recently, dad, I'm sorry. No, you go, you go. It's all you, man. No, when, when you were guys were talking about conviction, um, it reminded me of, uh, I think it's Eric Geiger, uh, his recent book, How to Lead. He talks about convictions, culture, and constructs. And oh, yeah, unpack that. Really that. That's helpful. Yeah, share that. Yeah, it was really helpful language for me because I realized that um, even with all these breakthroughs, there was still some bottleneck that was happening where uh, it's only been like this last year where I felt like I'm taking my foot off the brake and I want to lead our people more deeply into the ministry of the spirit. Mm. Um, and in large part, cause as I said, man, I'm, uh, I get all the fears and the apprehensions and the abuses that a lot of times happen, uh, around these things. But my conviction was if the spirit wants to give these gifts and move in these ways, um, it, we're crazy to not receive them. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, out of this conviction of we need everything the spirit can offer for us to fulfill the mission of Jesus yeah. came us trying to create this culture where now this has become a norm, um, where we come to expect that we live it out. And out of that culture, we build constructs, whether it's a staff meeting, seasons of fasting and prayer, um, trainings, all these things to kind of reinforce uh, these convictions and the culture that we want to live out. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think you're spot on. It begins with a conviction deep in the heart of the leader. But if that conviction doesn't, it needs to create a culture, and then there needs to be constructs built that sustain that. 
Yeah. That's really helpful. And, and so some of your, I mean, one of the insights is to think about culture is think about what is the culture of your church? What's the culture of your fellowship and what would it look like to aim toward a culture of prayer? And then what are the convictions that you need to have about the importance of that? What do those convictions look like um, lived out? And then the constructs, um, you know, teaching, like stuff you did, teaching on it, training the leaders or the early adopters, having time spent with them in prayer, um, and um, having those kind of catalytic events, like where you had those cyclical um, kind of gatherings or rallies that would that would reinforce those values and then ultimately you got to be patient with it too it's these culture change takes yeah. time so yeah so um christian this is this has been awesome and um i want to thank you for being with us and just for your story and for um all the, the gleanings that you've had about prayer and so you know as we as we wrap up i just folks listening just want to encourage all of us that God um, God does want to bring revival and in the fullness of the kingdom and it's it's gonna look different in all of our little city blocks for a Christian it was at in in his block in Brooklyn and then at his church and what will it look like for you but I think just to um, remind all of us of the importance of prayer and that without prayer um, uh, revival is not going to come and the core of revival leadership is about helping a community to enter into a culture of deeper prayer and so um, bless you all as uh, as prayer leaders and uh, culture change agents around prayer as we all long for revival and uh, and so we'll see you again uh, on the podcast next time <laughs>